your love and faithfulness. We're grateful, Father, that you as a holy God is one who also is involved in making us holy. And in your grace, you have chosen to set uh, your love upon us and to unite with us. And despite our unholiness, you and your grace have enabled us to become one with you. So we thank you for your love and your faithfulness. And we ask your guidance this evening as we look at your word to study more about prayer. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. On your uh, outline, we are, I believe we're in the section on the role of Yeshua in prayer. Is that right? Okay. So we did a little review last time and we made uh, made our way this far. So we're going to pick it up right from here. Uh, When we think of prayer, there are really two categories that are related to Yeshua's place with regard to prayer. First of all, there is Yeshua as teacher. But there are two categories that are related to Yeshua's place with regard to prayer. First of all, he as our teacher about prayer. And secondly, as the mediator um, between God and humanity in prayer. So first of all, let's think about Yeshua as teacher. First of all, among all the teachers of prayer, Yeshua, of course, stands out preeminent. The scriptures teach or record more teachings about prayer from him than any other character in all the scripture, any other writing. His, uh, what is recorded about prayer comes predominantly from him. Now, there are other passages of prayer, James and Paul, etc., but no other, uh, no other character in Scripture, no other person in Scripture teaches more uh, about prayer than he. And Yeshua regarded his teaching as essential for the proper practice of prayer. And this is indicated in what he says in John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. So a relationship with Messiah is essential if any of our prayers are going to be answered. We must be abiding in him. His words must be abiding in us. That is to say, his teachings must be central to our life. Not our assessment of his teachings, but his teachings. We must understand them correctly for them to be abiding in us. And when we are abiding in him, when his word correctly understood is living, uh, is being lived out in our lives, then whatever we ask will be done because what we will ask will be those things that are consistent with his word and will be consistent with his abiding presence in our lives. It isn't just anything, but there's always conditions or associations made that help us to understand the terms anything or whatever. In this context, it is the understanding of his word and his abiding presence in our lives. So the teaching by Yeshua on prayer is uh, not though we teach it, most of the teaching on prayer comes from Messiah, teachings on prayer is not limited to his words. It's important uh, that the request by his disciples that he instructed them on prayer was initiated, uh, and his, their request for understanding on prayer was initiated by their observation of him praying. And you see this in Luke chapter 1. So sometimes his teaching on prayer 
is in response to their request to understand more about prayer. And what prompts them to make that request is their observation of him praying. So the manner in which he prayed, the words that he used when he prayed, uh, the context of his prayer, all those things were attractive to his disciples. And thus they ask him, how can we pray? Teach us to pray. They did see a similarity between his praying and John's praying because they will say, teach us to pray like John prayed. So they saw that there was a connection between the way that they prayed. And part of the answer to that, that is, what was it that characterized their prayer that inspired the disciples to ask them, ask Messiah to teach them how to pray, was no doubt the close personal relationship, the close connection, we might say the friendship that existed. And that's what scripture means when we talk, when it talks about having fellowship with God, having fellowship with Messiah. There's a friendship that is uh, created. And that friendship is reflected in the way we speak to, to God. There's certainly a context where there's a more formal uh, approach to praying, primarily in a public square, perhaps. But in terms of our personal relationship, prayer ought to be a reflection of our relationship, and that relationship ought to be one that we would characterize as God being our friend. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, and if you'd like to turn with me there, you can. Uh, I'm going to try to minimize turning back and forth to Scripture. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, During the days of Yeshua's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So Hebrews 5 speaks of Yeshua's praying as one of the aspects of his identification with humanity. And so his praying, though it was a reflection of his intimate association with the Father, it also reflected his identification with you and I. Because when he prayed, at least in this instance, and what um, the writer to the Hebrews is thinking about, is that his prayers were offered up with loud cries and tears. So there was an emotionalism attached to his prayers. And that is something that identifies him with us and something that encourages us in our own praying. Not only was Yeshua a teacher of prayer, but there's also the sense in which he is the mediator of prayer at the very same time. He's our preeminent teacher, but he's also our mediator. Ultimately, the efficacy or the effectiveness of prayer depends upon the mediatorial work of Messiah. We could say the priestly work of Messiah it might be more of an Hebraic expression. But the priests were mediators between God and man. On the one hand, they represented the holiness of God to the people of Israel. And that was reflected in uh, their dress. It was reflected in their unique position. It was reflected in uh, their responsibilities. And so they were mediators of the holiness of God to the people. They also were mediators of the people to God. And so they stood as representatives of the fallenness of Israel and the need Israel had for the grace of God and the atoning uh, gifts that the Lord would provide in the blood atonement. 
So prayer depends upon the mediatorial relationship of Messiah. In one sense, he rightly conveys our prayers to uh, the Lord, uh, the Father. In the other hand, he stands as one who um, reflects our access to God the Father as well. But what we learn with respect to his mediatorial work, his priestly work in prayer, is that first of all, prayer is to be in the name of Messiah. The meaning is that prayer, in which we ask something of God or express something to God, but uh, is on the foundation of the revelation that Yeshua has given of himself and of his work. So when we pray in the name of Messiah, we're praying with regard to the revelation of Messiah and the work of Messiah in our behalf. So the name of Messiah reflects his work and his person. So when we say, and we ask this in Yeshua's name, we're saying we're asking this on the basis of who Messiah is. He's our Savior, and he's our, the means of our access to the Father. And because of what he has accomplished for us, enables us to come into the very presence of God. So the name of Messiah is a phrase, but it denotes uh, a much deeper and broader, uh, broader ideas. It reflects the totality of who Messiah is, and it reflects the work that Messiah has performed. And so as a result, the Father sends the Spirit of God in the name of Messiah. John 14, 26 reveals that. And so the Father sends the Holy Spirit on the basis of Messiah's work. And that's what occurs in Acts chapter 2. The Lord has told us that he would send the, um, the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God descends at Pentecost and his coming at Pentecost is on the basis of his redemptive uh, work and the fulfillment of that work. In a similar way, then, the Father answers prayers in the name of Messiah. You see that in John chapter 16, verse 23. That doesn't mean that the Son authorizes the Father to answer our prayers, when, we say, when the text tells us that the Father answers prayers in the name of Messiah. But rather, it's, what it denotes is that the redemptive work of the Son makes possible answers to our prayers. So, when we pray in the name of Messiah, it means we are praying in harmony with all that is involved with the person and work of Messiah. So, you know, we might, it would be very challenging if we say, Lord, we ask this on the basis of your death, on the basis of your resurrection, on the basis of uh, your healing grace, on the basis of your being the second person of the triune, on the basis of your messiahship. When we just simply say the name of Messiah, it is, it is sort of a phrase that denotes all of that. And to the degree to which we understand it, then we have a real sense of the significance of what Messiah has done uh, for us. We read that Yeshua's statements that prayer must be in his name is not a magical incantation, 
So it's not saying those words in his name that somehow unleashes God to answer our prayer. But rather the phrase presupposes an understanding, an embracing, a knowledge of the revelation which is embodied in the name of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So it's not the phrase, it's what the phrase denotes. And thus to pray in the name of Messiah means you're praying on the basis of your understanding of what he has done for us. What's that? Uh, well, I'll do my best. <laughs> but all this is being recorded. So, but, so the phrase, when we say, you know, we end our prayer and we say, in the name of Messiah, in the name of Yeshua, that phrase, in his name, those three words, it is not a magical incantation. It's not the, it's not the articulating of those three words that unleashes anything. It's the idea that is conveyed about through those words. So what is the idea that's conveyed through that expression? The idea that's conveyed through the expression in his name might otherwise be stated on the basis of who he is and on the basis of what he has done. And But we can't you know, we could spend the rest of our life talking about who he is and what he has done. And so when we pray, we're just expressing, Lord, when we come before you, we're coming before you on the basis of what your son has done for us and on the basis of who he is as the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. So it isn't a magical formula. In other words, you don't even have to say the formula if your prayer is offered on the basis of who Messiah is and what he has done. Your prayer then is being heard. It's not the phrase. It's not a magical incantation as if if we don't say those words in the name of Messiah, we've somehow failed to pray effectively. It's only an expression that denotes when we pray we know that we're praying on the basis of who the Messiah is and on the basis of what Yeshua has done for us. Is that... Okay. Yeah, there's no one else to pray to, right? I mean, there's only God. And there's only the living God, the true God. Uh, but in order for our prayers to be effective, they must be offered on the basis of who he is and what he's done. And the only way an individual can offer such a prayer is if he knows who he is and what he's done for him. So in that sense, uh, it's not to say God's not aware of what we're doing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. It's not like he can't hear it. Somehow I can't hear unless... But prayer is more than merely talk. It's more than verbiage. It's more than speaking. It involves conversation and interaction and beseeching uh, and encountering. And so when we start thinking of prayer as that, it's really the outworking of a relationship. 
It's the outworking of a friendship, coming back to what I said earlier. It's an outworking of a connection. And if that relationship is there, it's there because of who Messiah is and what he has done. And that's what the phrase in the name of Yeshua refers to. So uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, we see that the priestly work of Messiah is connected with his prayer. So in chapter 4, since we're in Hebrews 5, we can just take a look there. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us, sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So this passage connects the high priestly work of Messiah with prayer. And there are a couple of things here that are significant. What's in view then is coming to God in prayer for strength and help to face the temptations of daily life, to face the constant pressures to abandon our faith. That's why he says, um, um, where is that, that phrase? Uh, verse 15, for we have not a high priest, who is, but we have one who has tempted in every way, yet is without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. The issue for the Jewish believers to whom the writer is writing is the possibility of turning back on their faith. And so that's why um, I say one of the things that's involved here is that we're praying to deal with temptations, praying to deal with the pressure to abandon our faith. And we have a, a high priest who sympathizes with us, who knows how we feel, and therefore uh, the priestly work of Messiah, that mediatorial work, he not only represents God the Father to us, but in his high priestly work, he represents us to God. And how does he represent us? Well, he knows just how we feel. Now, when the text says he was tempted in all uh, points like we, uh, but without sin, in every way, just as we are yet without sin, that doesn't mean that he experienced the same temptations you and I have experienced any more than it means we have experienced the same temptations he has experienced. None of us, for example, has ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. And the reason for that is because none of us can do it. So it would be a temptation. Similarly, there are things that uh, Yeshua would not be tempted by that would be a temptation for us simply because he's the Son of God. But Scripture tells us that he was tested and he was tried. When it says in all points like we, what, he, what the passage is referring to is the fact that all temptations come through three gateways, you might say. First John 2.16 is it, I think, where, it's a, where John speaks about um, the um, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, right? Isn't that First John 2, I think? Sometimes I get these passages. And, and then he says in verse 16, for everything in the world, 
New International says, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. King James will say, and other more literal translations will say, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So all temptations, John is telling us, come through those three gateways. And they're illustrated in Scripture because these are the same three gateways that you see um, uh, Eve was tempted with, uh, tempted by the serpent in the garden. Right. So the evil one comes to her, and it says that she saw that the fruit was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it was beautiful, the lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life, to be like God. Similarly, we see this with Messiah when he was tempted. The first temptation to turn stones to bread, which was a gateway of the lust of the flesh, the need for food. And the second thing he said, the text tells us, I think in Matthew it's the second one, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says they will be yours if you bow down and worship me. The lust of the eyes, seeing the kingdoms which the Messiah knows rightly belongs to him. And then he tells him, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, which is the southeastern corner of the Temple Mount. In the time of Messiah, it was nearly 200 feet uh, off high off the, uh, the road. Today, it's about a hundred or so because it's been filled in some. But he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, tells him to throw himself down. The pinnacle of the temple is in the southeast corner, and it's there that you have the gate entranceways up to the temple, and you have the gates from which you would exit. So most people enter the temple mount from the south side. So by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, most people would see him as they would be coming into the temple. And they would see the angels would not let him dash his feet to the ground, and thus he would be acknowledged as the Messiah and Savior. So that was his reason for coming. So the temptation was through the gateway of the pride of life. So when the writer to the Hebrews says he was tempted in all points like we, or in every way, my translation says, doesn't mean with every same specific temptation you and I have. But it means in every way that temptations come to us, whether it's from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, so was Messiah tempted. And therefore, he can empathize and sympathize with our, our own uh, temptations. And thus, as our mediator, as our high priest, uh, we can come before him. He will strengthen us to deal with daily temptations and constant pressure that we might feel uh, to be uh, challenged or tempted to uh, abandon our faith. Further, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that we can approach God in prayer. Uh, not only can we, but we ought to approach God in prayer with boldness. Now, what he means by boldness is that we do not have to come before him with shame or fear. We can come before God with confidence that we have a great high priest who enables us to come before God the Father. It doesn't mean that we can demand things of God. Boldness is not irreverence. Boldness is not a taking for granted access. Boldness is confidence in the finished work of Messiah, what he has done, 
who he is and his present great high priestly role enables us to come before him and we never have to think that because of anything we have done or experienced uh, in any way can keep us from coming into God's presence. And I think we've all experienced at times where we have sinned and we have felt, I can't go before God because I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed or I feel guilty. Sometimes we feel that way in terms of coming to service. We've gone through something and we, or we're challenged and we, feel, and we feel, I just don't want to go to service today. And what that may reveal a number of things, but sometimes it reveals that feeling of shame and that I can't really come because I have done something or felt something or thought something that I ought not to have. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us none of those things ought to ever keep us from coming into God's presence. Why? Because the person of Messiah and his finished work is greater than anything we have done to offend him. And in fact, what he's done for us is for the very per reason or the very purpose of dealing with our offending of him. Because we offend him all the time in thought, word, and deed. We're just not aware of it. And because we also put sort of a level or a gauge on what we do, and if it's not that bad, we don't feel too badly about it. If it's really bad in our minds, we figure God must think it's really bad. And then we feel ashamed and uh, we don't, and fearful, and we don't come before him. The writer to the Hebrews is not saying we can make demands of God or that coming to him with confidence means that whatever we pray about is going to be answered in accordance with our desire or our will or our assessment. It means that we come with confidence because of Messiah, not because of what we're asking about or what we're asking, uh, asking for. No, no, no. The, you're asking more about what we pray about. And we're permitted to pray about everything and anything. And we're per permitted to make requests about anything and everything. But at the end of the day, God's will is what's going to be done. And if things do not occur in the manner in which we pray, we ought not then think that somehow I did not pray effectively enough. We ought to think, I think, um, that our prayer was just not in accordance with God's will. He had something else in mind. And again, uh, we ought also realize that our window is very small. And so we don't know the bigger picture. Right now, this has occurred. But what's going to happen through that process may yet be precisely what we're praying about. You know, we don't know the process by which God is going to take that issue to or how he's going to move it further down the road. So that's why we're encouraged to pray. And it's also why Paul tells us that the Spirit of God is interceding for us with prayers we can't utter because we don't know what to pray for. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. You know, we don't know what we should pray. And as a result, God is doing something for us. The Spirit of God is engaged when we pray. 
Well, uh, let me, well, let me back you up. Simply praying for someone's healing in the name of Jesus doesn't really mean anything. You know, we can pray for people's healings. We cannot demand it. We cannot insist on it. That's not a prayer at that. But at that point, that's not a prayer anymore. That is a declaration. No one, there's been no ask, right? Would you, that's a prayer, would you, but to say, be healed, that's a command. So that's not a prayer anymore. That's the individual addressing the individual, the person they're, they're thinking of, or addressing the illness or whatever, and making a demand. But it's not praying to God. Right? I mean, that... Right? That's just not a prayer to God. I mean, if you're praying to God, you would say, Lord, would you heal this individual? Please heal this individual. Uh, I ask that you might heal. I mean, I, those are the wor- thoughts that come to my mind. The idea of, in the name of, I haven't heard a prayer. I've only heard a com- an imperative, which is, do this. Now, Messiah can do that. He's the Son of God. But for us to do that, is uh, presumptuous because we're not there's no place in scripture where we're told to do that you know we're told to pray we're told to beseech the Lord we're told to come with confidence not in that what we pray for will be but confidence in the name of the one in whom we pray so there's an I think prayer always has an element of humility because it's a looking to someone else other than ourselves. And when we start making declarations, we're going to, we're going to come to that passage, but it certainly doesn't mean that that's, Yeshua is not teach, does not mean to tell us if we say to the mountain, be moved, it will be moved. Because it won't be. I mean, you can do it all, all you want, and you, you can get the most spiritual person in your life to do it, and it won't happen. And the reason it won't happen is because that's not what the passage means. It's not because God can't recreate the universe. He certainly can, but he's not going to do it at my command. He's going to do it because he wants to. Let there be, you know. And we know the scripture says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So, yeah, God can do that. I mean, that's not the question. The question is, is that what he means by that phrase? And it just isn't. You know? So, again, we come back to what we said earlier. In the name of Messiah means on the basis of who he is and what he has done. And what he has done has not, is not relegate omnipotent power to us to simply move his universe around. Well, I think resisting is not... The temptation comes. The resisting is to refuse to entertain the temptation. So in some sense, um, this these are things that have to do with the mind. Right. 
So, you know, um, you know, this idea of controlling what comes into one's mind, but with the help of God, you know, so that's one of the reasons why Paul talks about Romans 12, that we're to have the renewing of our minds. That's why Paul will say anything that's lovely, anything that's this, think on these things. That's why Paul will say, put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation. So we're to, resisting the evil one so that he will flee is not allowing your mind to entertain those things that would detract us from the things of God. So that that's at least one of the mechanisms by which we resist. You know, because you you can't just cut your mind out. So what do we have to do? We have to do what the scripture says. Think on the things of God. Think on wholesome things. Think on the things of salvation. Um, and and not uh, because in a way I guess and I you know I'm no psychologist now, but in many respects temptations begin in the mind. So they're sort of I think they're sort of nurtured there, and what the scripture would be saying is we have to work at and resist that's what it's a it's an action we have to do and so when those matters come into our minds we need to properly deal with them before they become sin they're just testings now they're temptations but then if we sort of regurgitate them now we're becoming susceptible to what the evil one is doing. And that's not to say every bad thought that comes into our minds is of the evil one. There's also the flesh. You know, we're sinners. And so we're prone to do these things. And we're going to look at these passages. I mean, some people attribute the works of the flesh that Paul talks about to demons. And Paul is very clear. That's not the demonic activity. That's simply our fallen nature. And it makes sense. Why would Satan waste and his cohorts waste his time dealing with things that we by nature struggle with? You know, it's sort of like, why, why, um, why focus on that? That's already a problem for us. So to attribute what Paul speaks about as weaknesses that arise from the fact that we are sinners as, you know, that's a, a, a demon of lying or something. No, that's just a problem we have, telling the truth. Demons don't have to worry about that because we're already struggling with it. So, you know, and they're, they're not foolish. So they're going to be working in areas that are much more subtle and must, much less uh, obvious. Oh, yeah, because uh, Scripture does tell us that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper, communion, in a worthy manner. And, of course, none of us is worthy. You know? So what does worthy manner mean? It means, first of all, that we've recognized who Messiah is and what he has done. And knowing full well of our sinfulness, whether we are conscious of any particular sins or we just know in general who we are, that we are but dust. Um, that's why I usually, almost always, but usually, make reference to First John. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So 
to partake in a worthy manner means we know Messiah is our Savior. We do this as unto him in remembrance of him and what he has done. And in regard to our own uh, walk with the Lord, we realize there's a need to confess our sin. And when we do that, to the best of our ability, and we, none of us does it perfectly or completely, but when we do that, we know he cleanses and we know he forgives. So from beginning to end, it's the work of God, and that's what makes us worthy to partake. Yeah, well, you know, um, it's more pervasive than that, you know, because Yeshua makes clear that if you have something against your brother, you know, before you put your gift on the altar, reconcile with that person. So it has nothing to do specifically with this Lord's Supper. It just has to do with your relationship with God. If you're expecting to... If you're expecting to have fellowship with God, to walk in the light as he is in the light, and yet there's conflict going on here that you're ignoring or not resolving, it's going to affect that walk. Now, um, but people need time to process things. You know, Scripture says, don't let the, your anger go, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, it means settle your disputes, and he says this too, settle your disputes quickly. So, obviously, we know how fallen we are. Things take time. So what is quickly? Well, I think if things are carrying on for weeks and weeks, I mean, now, now we're starting to run into that. Uh, we're starting to violate what God would have us to do. You know, as soon as we realize these things, as soon as we can make it a point to go to a person and either ask their forgiveness or express how they have felt they've been wronged uh, in a loving, not condemning kind of manner. But, you know, when you did this, it did this to me. I think you ought to know that. And the person may say, I had no idea. But I hear what you're saying. I can understand why I'm really sorry that my actions have caused that. Or the person might say, um, yeah, I know. I'm really glad you came to me because I was feeling weird about coming to you. And, you know, you just try to talk it through. But Scripture is certainly clear that it ought to be done sooner rather than later. Uh, let's move on and see how far where we can get. Um, so I mentioned praying with boldness. Um, there's also the meaning praying confidently with respect to who Messiah is and what he's done as our high priest, not with a sense of we can demand God to do something for us. And if he doesn't do it, well, we haven't come with boldness, you know. Um, in the, this uh, next point is the exhortation to pray, pray to pr to prayer rests upon the possession of the believer's confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Messiah. Hebrews 10 uh, tells us that. He's our high priest. And Yeshua, the Messiah, identifies himself with his people. Uh, because of this solidarity with sinful human beings, uh, Messiah could not appear in the presence of God as their representative unless he dealt with uh, their sin. And so it's because he has offered his life as a satisfaction for the sins of the world that uh, we're able to appear in the pre he's able to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. And so Hebrews makes that point with regard to his high priestly ministry. 
the blood of Messiah is the means by which uh, we can come into God's presence. Otherwise, we couldn't. And uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, and chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that Yeshua is the forerunner. This idea of forerunner means we follow in his steps. And so the entrance into God's presence that he made possible by his sacrifice is the way for us. It's the way for us to travel into God's presence. So this whole idea of Yeshua being mediate, the teacher of prayer, he instructs us on how to pray and he models uh, a life of prayer. But in his mediatorial capacity as our great high priest, he enables us to come into God's presence. And we can have confidence when we come into God's presence. And he, is, uh, he identifies with our needs. But from beginning to end, it is what he has done that enables us uh, to have our prayer uh, be the kind of prayer that it can be. Now let's think a little bit about the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Because the possibility of prayer rests not only upon the work of Messiah, through whom we have access, but also upon the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's sort of like we have additional help, you know, in praying. So there are two aspects of the Spirit's work in prayer uh, that's revealed in Scripture that's important for us. On the one hand, he provides motivation and guidance for prayer, and he acts as an intercessor for the believer in prayer. So first of all, he provides motivation and guidance. So Paul uh, reveals how prayer is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in the life of the believer, Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6. Romans 8.15 For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So prayer is the result of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life because, because of, we've received the Spirit, his work in our life, we become children of God, and thus we can cry out to God as our Father. In uh, Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who, who calls out Abba, Father. So because of the work of the Spirit of God in taking residence in our hearts, we can call out to God as our Father. So his presence in our life. Of course, it's interesting to note the Greek word pneuma in these passages refers to the Holy Spirit. I mean, it can refer to our spirit. But these are references are very clearly the spirit who calls out Abba Father is a reference to the spirit of God. So his point is that as a result of the spirit's presence in the believer, there arises from the believer the cry to God as our father, Abba, Daddy. And this is borne out because the phrase says, by whom we call out Abba Father. 
So the Spirit of God actually enables us to cry out to God as our Father. So that's the mystery, you know, where we are crying out, and yet at the same time, it's God's work in us that is enabling us to cry out. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, Therefore, my dear, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you. You know, so you're to work out your salvation. And why? Because God is at work in you regarding his salvation. So in the same way, prayer is a work we do, but it's also a work God is motivating. God is energizing. God is, uh, the Lord is enabling. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not uh, independent of ourselves. So the teaching of Romans chapter 8, verse 15, which I read, and Galatians 4, 6, the Spirit uh, dwelling in our heart enables us to cry out. So the teaching of this is that the believer's ability to pray comes from the Holy Spirit who dwells within him. So if that being the case, there's no element of proper prayer which cannot be traced back to the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. So when we don't pray properly, that's because that's us praying, you know. That's sort of a reflection of our theological thoughts. But when we are praying in accordance with what Scripture teaches, and when we're, we are moved by the Spirit of God, He's going to have us pray in a manner that's consistent with His Word, so it can then be traced to the Holy Spirit's working in our lives. So in a way, if you think about this, and I used to teach this, but I never had really the same sort of thinking about it as I'm beginning to have. But right thoughts about God results in right behavior for God. See, so often we think it's what we think about God is not important. We are oftentimes made to think that how we act is more important than what we believe. So we hear things like loving your neighbor is more important than trying to understand the triunity. But in reality, that's wrong. Because you cannot understand how to really love your neighbor unless you have some idea of how love operates within the triune God. Because if we don't understand how love operates within the triune God, then our understanding of love is what we think it is, not what we know it is with regard to who God is. I'm getting ready to do a wedding this weekend, and um, a thought that had occurred to me as I was preparing a message and reading on this, and reading on stuff to, to do this, is um, when God creates Adam, places him in the garden, of course, Adam's in an unhappy state, and the scripture says so. It's not good that the man is alone. Even though six or seven times in Genesis 1, it says, and God saw this, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then he creates man and woman in his image. And then in chapter 2, when he speaks about man being placed in the garden, he says, 
and the man was alone, and it was not good that the man was alone. It's the first time we have a not good statement, is the aloneness of Adam. So why was that, why is that so bad? I mean, think about this. This is God's perfect creation. And he also is walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. So he has perfect communion with God, and he has a perfect world that has not yet fallen, and yet God still says it's not good. We, we would be, none of us would believe that. We would believe if it's just me and God, it's okay. But God says it's not okay, because that's what it was for Adam, without sin. And he says it's not good. So why wasn't it good? And I think the reason why it wasn't good is because Adam was created in the image of God. So what wasn't good about Adam being alone? He's created in the image of God, and God is communal. God is three persons. God exists in community. He does not exist alone. He may be one God, but he exists co-eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is relationship, and you cannot have relationship unless there is someone to relate to. And so um, this is the heart and soul, by the way, of Augustine's argument for the triunity of God when he speaks of God as love. What is love? Well, the Father is love, the Son is beloved, and the Spirit of God uh, enables love or something. He has this threefold thing, which is quite interesting and uh, I hadn't really thought about it being a very good analogy <laughs> who am I to say that about you know one of the greatest thinkers of all time but in preparing for this wedding and thinking about the aloneness of Adam and God saying it wasn't good though that's how he created him initially in a perfect world in a perfect relationship with himself so it's so not good because he's creating God's image, and God's image involves relationships of love. So, if that is true, then what you understand about God is more important than what you do. Because what you do hinges on what you know. And so for Adam and Eve, uh, for Adam, being alone was a real problem. Even though from an experiential point of view, you and I would say, there is no problem. There's no sin. There's perfect communion with God. We would say that because we haven't thought perhaps deeply enough about it. And now that says a whole, that opens up a whole other world of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, because loving your neighbor as yourself means you are manifesting the image of God. If you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you're failing to be the kind of person God initially created you to be. So I used to say to my students, you know, belief precedes behavior. And more often than not, what we hear from our pulpits is we hear these messages, some of which are, you know, I don't know how good or bad they are, but if there's no application on how you live, you know, that's usually where most of the sermons camp. You know, a little bit of theology, a little bit of trying to understand the 
not just the historical context, but the theological significance of something, but then the rest of it is all about, you know, what you do. And one of the reasons why there is such a dearth of preaching in our world, in our society, is because we've departed from what preaching used to be, which is a focus on what we're supposed to believe and understand about God. Because when we've embraced those ideas, it will naturally, if you've embraced them, have an impact on how you live. And therefore, the early preachers, you know, they didn't have sections on application, you know. So how am I supposed to do it? And we talk about, well, you know, and here are some things you can do. That never existed. You read some of the old sermons, you never hear that at all. What do you hear? You hear, this is who God is. This is how he exists. This is what he's like. This is how he's made up us. Now be that. You know, be that. And uh, so I say that uh, in, in this context because it's important that we understand theology. We understand what the Bible teaches about God and, and all aspects of, of it. Because when we have a handle on that, then it starts impacting on how we live moment by moment, day by day. Now, I'm not saying it's either or, so don't misunderstand me. I'm only saying I think the emphasis today is in this area of how we are to deal with the problems of life. Very little about who God is. And so there's this whole focus on, you know, uh, human behavior without having established a foundation for it, which is the character and nature of God. So, um, so my point um, here is simply that our ability to uh, cry out to God is something God generates and creates within us and we uh, partner with that work in uh, calling out to him. And so there's no element of proper prayer which cannot be traced back to the operation of the Holy Spirit. So when I said proper prayer, that means we need to have a theology of prayer. You know, you just don't... In one sense, you can just do it. But if we don't have an understanding of what the scriptures teaches about prayer and who God is and some of the things we're reflecting on, then our prayer might just be a subjective experience, sort of a behavioral reaction, and are we really doing this right? So we want to do it right, and uh, the Holy Spirit is at work within us, and his word, understanding his word about prayer, is what enables us to do prayer to the best of our ability. Um, and and then I, I think I just mentioned here, in Romans 8, 15 and 4, 6, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Now that's a mystery too. I mean, the idea that this, this God himself dwells within us. But that's what scripture says. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. No one really knows what that means per se, but God is alive within us. Uh, we're tabernacles. Um, and so we have, at the very least it means, that we have an intimate relationship and connection with God because of the Spirit of God 
that has taken up residence in our innermost being. Can't penetrate too much deeper than something like that. Uh, so, so where is it in there? Uh, well, you know, he's in there. <laughs> you know, I don't know where, but he's with. He, we have one of my professors when we were wrestling with this. Uh, he sort of ended up saying, "I think these passages speak about an intimacy of relationship with God, and the idea of trying to localize the very presence of God is something we can't do." And maybe he's right. Um, certainly. We know that Messiah says the Spirit of God is with you, and now he is in you, he says in uh, John 16. That's the promise. You know, the Spirit of God is with you, but will be in you. So does he mean to say the Spirit of God is among you, but now you're going to have a relationship with me by means of the Spirit of God, you know, engaged in that process? We don't know all that it means. But this is part of the mystery of uh, knowing the living God and having a relationship with him. The Spirit of God also intercedes for the uh, believer. Again, a key passage is Romans 8, 26 and 27. So as a remedy for our weakness in knowing what to pray for, the Scripture says the Spirit of God is praying for us. Now, what I find important about that, and I uh, shared on it to some degree, is just that then prayer ought to be a humble activity. Because if he's praying because of our weakness, that means whenever we pray, we're manifesting our weakness. You know? None of us prays without praying weakly. <laughs> you know? I don't mean you know, seven days a week. I mean, we're weak. Paul tells us this. Romans 8, what is it, 26, I said. Uh, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So where does he help us in our weakness? Where are we weak? And he includes himself. Paul must have been pretty good at, pray, at praying. He's an apostle and all that we know about him. Yet he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So where are we weak in prayer? He says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. So in the very least, this passage ought to tell us whenever we pray and pray for others, we should do so with great humility because we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> you know, that's what Paul is saying. He helps us in our weakness. Why? Because we don't really know what we're doing. We don't know really what, we're, what we ought to be praying about. Why don't we know what we ought to be praying about? Because we don't know what God's will is in everything. I mean, we could pray for the salvation of the lost. We know that he desires that all should come to repentance. But that doesn't mean everyone's going to come to repentance. That's the thing we don't know. You know, we're weak in this regard. We don't know how God does this stuff. How is it that he desires all to be saved and yet all aren't? You know, that's the mystery of the dynamics of God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. And so when someone has a need and when they ask us to pray for them, we don't know what God how God's going to answer that need or if he'll answer it at all. Maybe he wants that person to have that need uh, as hard as it might be for us. But Romans tells us the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but fortunately the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that words cannot begin to express. So the idea is it's not about tongues, obviously, because it's words we can't express. It's things we can't express. 
Tongues is an expression. But this is something we can't express. It is him praying in a manner in which we cannot pray because we don't know how to pray about these things. Yeah, I think this is something between God the Father and the Spirit of God. I don't think so. I think he's just saying, he's just making a statement. When we pray, the Spirit helps us in our prayer. How so? By communicating with God, the Father, despite our prayer, regarding what it is we're praying about. He does. The Spirit of God dwells us all the time, and we oftentimes don't sense many things that's already going on. We never sense regeneration. We're made alive, you know, and we are being renewed day by day. We never sense that. Uh, it's a process that we look back on and we see change, but we rarely feel the change or experience the change in the sense of conscious uh, awareness. I think that's a real possibility. So the nice thing about that is that what we're praying for is being prayed for rightly. I mean, on the one hand, we could say, I don't like that idea. On the other hand, we could say, well, then that means um, our prayer is, uh, is being prayed rightly before the Father. It's again one of those mysterious sort of realities. But it's meant to encourage us in our prayer, not to discourage us. You know? I mean, if we if we if we thought about well, think of it this way. I when I was a young person and for a short time I think we were living in Brooklyn. And around a the corner, there was a guy, at least is what I was told, I was a young person. I mean, I was like three or something. And there was a guy that had a stand with uh, uh, potato knishes. And periodically, I would just go there, and a the guy would just tally up my bill, and my mother would go out there, and she would pay for it. Well, you know, from my perspective, that was pretty good. Because I was able to get what I wanted, and didn't realize that there was somebody paying for it, you know, that I was in debt. And there was somebody that was paying for me the whole time. She said I was in diapers. <laughs> it was just a guy on the street. That's what I'm told. So, but, uh, but the, my point is we can order from God. And it gets taken care of. You know, that's what... That's not to say we ought to treat this frivolously. It's only to say it's a reality of our weakness, even in prayer. Yeah. Right. Well, you know what's really 
helpful to me in this too is this should also minimize gossip. You know, when people have needs and stuff and circulate, you know what you should do? You should do this. You should do that. You should do that. Everybody's got opinions about what they should do. And this passage is telling us, you know, we have real weaknesses. All of us think we know what the right thing is. God's at work and he's going to bring to bear what will be uh, the right the right thing for that individual. His will will be accomplished. Now, this is all, you know, again, this is mysterious, but I do think it ought to grant us confidence in trusting God, you know, and sort of allowing his will to work its way out in us without a sense of anxiety. Philippians says that, right? You know, bring these requests to the Lord and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. And uh, this is part of that that, you know, I'm praying about something. I really would hope this would happen. And um, ultimately, we have to take comfort in the Spirit of God is at work, praying for things as he determines and what is right. At least that's what Paul seems to be saying. And But again, he's helping our weakness because we don't know what to pray. Maybe in some instances we do. But his general statement is, uh, is that we don't. And as a remedy for it. Uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The passage indicates that the Spirit carries on a work that is over and against our own. You know, he says he carries on a ministry of prayer that is over and against our own. It's sort of on the sideline. You know, he's listening, and whatever we got right is being reiterated, and whatever we got wrong, he's correcting. <laughs> Which is like someone have taken the test for you. And uh, the Spirit himself places emphasis on the fact that the Spirit is the subject of the action. You know, he doesn't just say the Spirit of God does this. But he says in the same way, the Spirit himself. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So there's an emphasis that the Holy Spirit is engaged in this process. And... And we'll, we'll call it here since we're very close uh, to nine. Um, and it says that he makes appeals or petitions uh, in our behalf. In fact, the Greek phrases here means to appeal or petition and for the benefit of another. So what the Spirit of God is doing is interceding for us. Now, all this is to, you know, we're just getting a broad spectrum of what the scriptures essentially teach about prayer. We're not, this is not exhaustive, obviously. We'd be here for a very long time. But we're just trying to get a smattering of things. So we've talked about the fact tonight, we've talked about, you know, we pray in Messiah's name. So what does that mean? It's not a magical incantation. It's a prayer on the basis of who Messiah is, what he has accomplished. Now, you notice what's happening there is that prayer that is focusing not on what, you know, as we haven't talked about this yet, we're not focusing on what words we use to convey the things that are on our minds. We're starting with, let's start with focusing on the one to whom and by whom we pray. And he's the one who has, is, well, everything about him you can, you can think of. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He's fully in control. He's sovereign. You know, all those things. So our prayer is based on this one who is the Messiah and is God in the flesh and who has 
redeemed us and become our great high priest who is our mediator, conveying the holiness of God as well as our needs to him. And he can do this very effectively because he is God come in the flesh and in coming in the flesh, he has sympathizes with all of our needs because he was tempted and tested through the same gateways you and I are tempted and tested through. So he can identify with our prayers. He can mediate our prayers. He enables us to come into God's presence. He knows exactly who we are, what we're struggling with. And if that wasn't enough, and it would be, the Spirit of God that we've just focused a bit of our attention upon is also engaged in this process. And his engagement is to help us in our weakness in praying. And our weakness is we really don't know what to pray about. So that ought to cause us to be humble in our praying and praying for others. And it also ought to encourage us because despite our weakness, the Spirit of God is setting things straight in the mind of God. And as we saw earlier, because of the mediatorial work of Messiah, we can come with boldness into the presence of God. Not because we can demand anything of him, but because of what has been provided for us. So the thinking is all about who God is. Because he's the initiator in our lives of praying. And he's the one that is correcting every weakness we have concerning praying. And he's the one who can identify with all of our needs. Because even if somebody comes and says, would you pray for me about this? And we may say, gee, I know exactly how you feel because I went through the same thing. The reality is the Lord knows exactly how that individual feels. We know somewhat in that instance what that person feels. So if our thoughts are sort of uh, gauged by these things we know about him, that will greatly affect how we pray because we're praying to one who's got it all you know we don't have to clarify things for him because he knows it all we just want to bring the person into god's presence who in a time of need may find it difficult to come into god's presence like shame oftentimes hampers us from coming into god's presence pain sometimes hampers us from coming into god's presence so if someone can come alongside to encourage them with the right words, to encourage them with the right thoughts about the God before whom we are about to address this concern, that will really minister to people. Not the demands that, come, that we make from our lips as if if we raise our voice, that person will be more encouraged and the thing will change, you know. <laughs> you know? Or if we say the right words and there's a magical phrase, it's all about helping individuals understand him and if our prayers do that they will also um, help the individual in uh, connecting with God and ultimately it's God that's going to answer the need in accordance uh, in accordance with his will well let's pray and then if people need to leave uh, please feel free to do so Father, we want to thank you for your goodness and kindness, and we thank you for your teaching to us about prayer. And uh, Lord, this is, uh, on the one hand, it's a simple matter. We just talk to you. It's human speech, conversation with God. On another hand, it's uh, a little bit more elusive and challenging. So it's an area we need to grow and, 
an area we need your help most, most desperately, particularly with understanding what your word says about prayer and not simply what we've experienced in praying. And so I pray, Father, that uh, you might help us to be able to discern that distinction. And that, Father, we as a congregation of praying individuals and as a prayer ministry team would be all the more effective in praying prayers with others that are encouraging, that are uplifting, that draw us closer to you and help us to find confidence and trust in who you are and in your will. So we pray this in the Messiah's name. Okay, um, if there are any any other questions or.